to the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. Welcome to you all. I'm Alex Jones. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. And it's my great pleasure to welcome you uh, to this brown bag uh, interview talk, call it what you will, Q&A with uh, Andrea Mitchell, one of the real pros in the journalism business, uh, who is not only someone who uh, reports the news, but uh, on more than one occasion has been right in the middle of it. So she knows exactly how it feels to be reported upon. She was telling me just before coming over here that today she's uh, all over Politico because of her uh, reporting on the Hillary Clinton um, diaries. I don't know whether you've seen anything along that line, but uh, these are very fraught subjects and journalists increasingly, when they report, uh, are going to become part of the story even if they don't want to be, simply by finding themselves in the middle of a very bitter partisan crossfire. Uh, Andrea is the chief foreign affairs correspondent for NBC News. She also is host of uh, an MSNBC show, Andrea Mitchell Reports, on weekdays in the afternoons. Is it one to we are coming go ahead back. and plug? Uh, let me plug away because you have to find us. We're moving to noon. So the big, the big headline there is that I will, for the first time in seven years, get to have lunch. Don't get used to it. The way things change these days. Uh, I'm also asked to tell you that the hashtag, if you're going to be using Twitter, is Mitchell. Um, Andrea is going to speak for a few minutes. She and I will speak briefly with each other, briefly for a few minutes, and then we will open the uh, floor to you and your questions. Andrew, we're very glad to have you. Well, well, thank you all so much. I'm here and see friends, Tammy and Jill and other colleagues, past and, and present and maybe future. So it's wonderful to be here at the Shorenstein Center and uh, surrounded by people who care about a lot of things that I'm passionate about and that I know Alex is. Uh, first of all, uh, good journalism and politics and foreign policy and the intersection. Um, I love foreign policy. I've covered politics for years, but since 1994, I have been primarily foreign policy. And there, that sort of waxes and wanes. Uh, right now, we are at a moment in time where uh, we have too much, too many crises, and none of them easily soluble. So it is, uh, unfortunately, a case where it is uh, a great moment for coverage of foreign policy, there's a great appetite for it. But do we have the tools, uh, even in this day and age where we're all talking about the, the impact of social media and the advances, do we have the same tools or the tools that we need to cover these crises? And how is the administration and how are our allies dealing with them as well? I think as a journalist, uh, nothing is, illustrates the dilemma we face more than Syria. And when we can visa someone to go in or sneak someone in who then risks getting kidnapped or worse, uh, all of which uh, we've seen and the, the Committee for uh, 
for, for, um, <coughs> to, protect to protect journalists. CPJ's report only yesterday illustrated just how dangerous this has become. But Syria is a case where now the opposition, as it has evolved over the past few years, partly because of American and other reluctance to become more engaged, uh, has become completely fractured. And we see the Geneva talks, which um, disbanded for a while, at least today, yesterday, and the day before got nowhere. Strong statements on the record from the State Department um, dis dismissing what the regime is doing and saying that at least the opposition leaders who are at the table are being more responsive. But who are these opposition leaders and what do they represent? And the fighters would say that they are you know, political leaders who can't take the risk of coming back and don't know what's happening on the ground. But now the fighters uh, who are, quote, moderates, whatever that means, are clearly being um, uh, overwhelmed by their own fight with Hezbollah-based fighters and Al-Qaeda-oriented factions. And Assad is stronger than ever. And if there was an argument which people like Nick, Nick Burns here and others were making, and John Kerry when he was in the Senate two years ago for more American engagement, for arming or training, um, now uh, you could see the counter-argument. Well, good would it do? So you have only last week John McCain and Lindsey Graham meeting in Munich. And there's a real textbook case of how do you cover this one. McCain and Graham and 13 other members of Congress meeting with Kerry off the record in Munich. Um, three journalists, then Kerry leaves, flies home with his press corps, who are in the closed bubble of his airplane. Three journalists managed to get a ride on the congressional delegation's plane, and it's McCain and Graham giving their version of what Kerry did or did not say. Kerry lands and is faced with this eruption of reporting that he confessed that the, pro the, that the policy is a failure, he doesn't know what to do about it, he's trying to get the president to change policy. And what does a third party, me, <laughs> or any other journalist, make of all of this, except to try to interview people who are on all sides of it and, and just present this debate to the American people and to the rest of the world. So it is just hard as can be. My new colleague, Bill Neely, recently coming to NBC from ITN uh, full time, has been struggling through the videos that we are seeing on social media of you know, most recently a massacre only yesterday that the UN decried to try to find these people, identify who they are. And it is incredibly uh, more complicated, even than it was when we were setting up a war room, I recall, in my news organization in 2009, to try to identify who were these Iranian students who were on Twitter, and um, how could we you know, identify them. Now that Twitter is carrying um, tweets in Arabic and having more um, uh, ground-based uh, reporting on social media, it becomes perhaps more accurate but even more complex for those of us in the mainstream media. And so we have, not for lack of trying, done a really uh, inadequate job, I think, of recounting what is going on there. Only the most recent example. Social media, 
uh, you know, we keep reading, and there are recent, more recent academic journals. Um, at GW has has done the whole um, series of reports on this since Iran, through the you, you know, original revolution in Ukraine, and now what we're seeing in the square again. Certainly, Tahrir Square and the aftermath of what happened, what originated in Tunisia, social media was supposedly going to be the uh, the engine driving these movements. What is the impact, though, after the fact, and uh, why are totalitarian regimes elsewhere in the region able to survive despite the technological you know, revolution? So I think you know there is just a lot that we have to come to grips with as political scientists, as people who love foreign policy, but from our standpoint, from my standpoint as a journalist, um, what are the networks doing? We are expanding our coverage of foreign policy, but when I, if I want to go back to square one, to basics, when I started in film, would you believe, uh, first covering you know, local news, and then I went to the network in 1978, and my first foreign story was Jonestown, Guyana. And I've written about this and how in, unprepared I was. Thanksgiving, 1978, I was a new correspondent. I was replacing a correspondent who'd been killed on the runway by um, Jim Jones's henchman. He and our cameraman were, were killed. And I was sent in with really ill-equipped. There were no satellite feeds. We had to, um, I had to fly with my, tape by then each night to Trinidad Tobago to get to a satellite and then get back in time for the Today Show. And um, we'd get back after the Today Show to begin covering the next day's events. And um, in thinking about this in the last couple of days, in fact, I was thinking about how the immediacy of satellites has so um, changed what we do and our ability to be on the ground in more places, um, dangerous places. But what it has also done is changed the rules of the road for what we put on television, what we put on online. And when I started at NBC, we did not use video that was not shot by NBC News. We had bureaus everywhere. And then we partnered with news agencies. Uh, then AP and Reuters went into television. But we, we were very proprietary about having someone validate what was photographed. Well, that, that is another era. But now we have no way of identifying a lot of what we see. And so there are days when we see footage from Syria, we simply, many days, we, we simply don't use it. Or we have to just say, this is the latest video, and we, we can't verify it if we decide that it is something important enough to be seen. And much of the, the explicit material we do not put up. Uh, now the latest challenge for all of us is we are changing from a television company to a digital company. And our new website went up uh, just last week. And uh, NBCnews.com with uh, when I come in in the morning, not only am I doing Morning Joe and then the Today Show and then organizing my broadcast, but I'll be asked, can you come out and write an analysis piece and do a video capsule for the website? 
or write text for the website. And I'll, do, I'll interrupt a morning rundown meeting, go do that, come back, do my program, and that's not just foreign policy, although we usually do two or three out of five segments a day on foreign policy, five days a week. But depending on what's driving the news, a lot of politics. And then focus on what is the important foreign policy story of the day, if there is one you know, for nightly news. And I might be contributing to what Richard Engel or Bill Neely are doing, or they might be contributing to me. I might be interviewing um, Ali Arouzi in Iran, and there's been a lot of developments in Iran in the last couple of days. You know, there's just a constant, um, the tempo has increased <coughs> exponentially as we are more driven by the web. And this is um, an amazing opportunity and expansion of what I used to do. We used to fight to get, you know, two minutes on the evening news, and now if it isn't there, it's someplace else, and I'm still reporting and writing, and it's 24-7. I was on the set of Meet the Press last weekend, and there were all sorts of erroneous reports coming out of Iran, but we had to check them out and try to decide whether to change the rundown of Meet the Press. We had a domestic lead, but did we want to go with what was the, the threats from Iran, and they were, how could we knock them down? So at 6 o'clock in the morning, I got a call and was calling. Um, the White House and the State Department and my colleagues were calling the Pentagon to try to find out whether this was accurate or not. And, and in the middle of, and Netanyahu was reacting to the false reports, because it was Sunday in Israel in the cabinet meeting. And I'm on the set of Meet the Press between 9 and 10, and the control room is messaging me uh, during a commercial break, can you check out this latest thing that Khomeini said? And so I'm messaging the State Department during the commercial break while we're talking about um, immigration reform to find out whether they have a response to the latest comments as reported by Khomeini. So that just gives you a sense of how many, um, what the risks are also for getting something wrong. And part of my job, which has always been my job, is to tell them you don't want to go with this. This is wrong. And so I consider myself sort of a, an independent fact checker, which all of our producers and correspondents are. And if there's one lesson uh, to young journalist students that, um, that all of us, Jill and, and I would certainly share from our years on the road, is um, your, your biggest job is not to break a story. It's to try to stop an inaccurate story from getting out. Because once it's out, it's awfully hard to pull that thing back. Uh, with that, Alex, I think you know. Let me, let me uh, ask you just a couple of questions, and then we'll open it to the, to the audience. You work and have worked for most of your career for NBC News, and that is one of the mainline traditional news entities uh, in this country. You now do a show on MSNBC, and MSNBC has increasingly become identified with a different kind of news, one that is a sort of the anti-Fox. How does that work in your life. I mean, you're doing a political, it's on foreign affairs, I know, but you also, as you said, do politics. Uh, how does it work to be at MSNBC an hour a day with a politics-oriented show, and then on NBC Nightly News and the Today Show being Andrea Mitchell, the journalist? I'll, t I'll tell you how I make it work. And this is not the way partisans on either side might perceive it. Uh, I'm not on prime time MSNBC by design, because that is an advocacy opinion format. And 
gradually, I mean, um, our former boss, Steve Kappas, used to say it's like an editorial page at night. Gradually, that did, that the day did become more of that in the afternoon with some of the other programs. So they have redone the lineup, and starting after the Olympics, we're going to come back with me on at noon so that we are going to separate the news broadcast, the news part of the cable day, which is, you know, informally Morning Joe, which is, you know, certainly Joe's opinions and other opinions there. But then Chuck Todd at 9, and then it's Chris Chansing at 10 and 11, Tamron Hall is also um, working as one of the hosts of the Today Show, and then I'm at noon. And then starting at 1 o'clock, it's going to be more opinion with Ronan Farrow and others in the afternoon. So what we've seen through our research is that the viewer gets it. Um, the blogosphere might not, but the viewer has identifies Chuck and me and others as NBC News, primarily. And they know that Rachel Maddow, uh, my friend and colleague and others, are opinion uh, and columnists, if you will. Uh, and they're doing a different, different job. And if there's breaking news on my beat, Rachel will interview me and debrief me. And she's never asked me a question like, well, what do you think about that? It's always, you know, what's happened here and what do we need to worry about and what's the truth of the Iran position? And, you know, that's the kind of question she'll ask me. And she, she gets that separation. So um, I have a comfort level. I, there's a synergy. By doing the MSNBC broadcast, I'm able to interview a lot of people I wouldn't normally do, Colin Powell last week on uh, where we, you know, where he thinks America is culturally on um, you know, black history and um, the challenges of education for minority students, which is America's promise and something that I'm involved with as well. You know, Judd Carey, other big interviews that I can't do on nightly news. I can't do a 15-minute you know, interview. So it gives me um, this wonderful opportunity, and uh, MSNBC has been incredibly loyal to me in years when I wasn't one of the prime campaign correspondents, MSNBC for the network, because there could only be two or four at most, and so that's, you know, rotated around. I was on the floor of the conventions for MSNBC and covering, you know, major races for MSNBC for years. So, for me, it's been a great fit. Um, there are moments of discomfort, you know, which I won't deny, but we all get through that. And I just hope that after 35 years at NBC and 12 years before that covering news and politics in, in the local, you know, markets of Philadelphia and Washington, that people know who I am and what I represent. I want to talk to you about something else that we were chatting about briefly before we started, because it's something that goes to the way journalism works even in this digital age. This morning, uh, the New York Times used the power of its front page to uh, billboard a story that essentially said mammograms don't really prove anything, they're not effective. At least that's the way the headline framed it. You were talking about how you and your colleagues uh, were talking this morning about how NBC News is going to carry this story. Now this is, in one sense, it's about the New York Times and maybe a bit, but the main thing it's also about is how do you responsibly cover something like 
a study like this that can have a profound impact on whether or not women get mammograms. How do you, you know, where, where is, M, if we look at NBC News tonight, what are we going to see? Now, I am here today, so I'm not engaged in that. And um, I have a, a vested interest in my network reporting it in a fully rounded, you know, well thought out way. Um, we have a medical unit, and Dr. Nancy Snyderman is a really esteemed correspondent. She happens to be in Sochi, but can do the story from there. She's got a whole team working on it. She's familiar with the study. She thinks it's a very well-rounded study. Because if you look at statistics, um, not only are there a lot of false positives, but I think, and I imagine really studied, in, you know, read into it as deeply as I would otherwise, that there are downsides to radiation. That said, I have been, before, during, and after my own breast cancer and recovery, a strong advocate for screening. Why should I, as a well-to-do woman, have access to medical care that um, other people with fewer advantages or without health care don't have? I, it's something I discussed at depth, in depth with, with Betty Ford, who led the way on this. I know science evolves, but uh, there's certain things that are very clear to me. Mammograms will pick up some tumors and miss others. Digital mammograms will pick them up better. Yes, there is a downside to any radiation, but you get chest x-rays if they think you have bronchitis and might be getting pneumonia. Um, so there's a risk-benefit in any medical procedure. Because of genomics, now, when I had breast cancer, they were able to tell me after my surgery what the tumor looked like. First of all, they could tell me in other ways that it hadn't spread. But second of all, they could tell me what stage it was at and actually what was the DNA of the tumor so that I could then decide, did I need chemo? Did I need radiation? What kind of medication should I take and for how long? So that is, that's the advance. Eventually, they may not need mammograms to tell us a lot of other things about our DNA. But until we are there, um, I think women uh, have to be able to make the choice. Should the Times yeah. have put that on the front well, page? I'm not, I think perhaps it should be on the front page, but perhaps it, the headline should have been rewritten and maybe more um, countervailing opinion should have been put in there because you can make the choice. If you have a mammogram and you have a, 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 a lump and you have a biopsy, minimally invasive, let's say. You can decide, do I want to have a mastectomy? Do I want to have a lumpectomy? Do I want to do nothing? Do I want to have radiation? But those are choices that a woman, any patient, should have. And I wouldn't have known it was there, perhaps without the mammogram. So I think telling broadly the way it's going to be rewritten and the way it's going to be in, you know, interpreted by people, perhaps with less background in education, don't get a mammogram, I think that is a very dangerous message to send to people until medicine advances. It's going to be very interesting to see how the three networks, I'm sure it will be on all three network nightly news shows. That is still the power of the New York Times in some exactly, situations. as you like know this. better than anyone. Uh, let me open it up to uh, questions. There are, is a microphone here. Uh, I would ask that you uh, step to the mic if you have a question and just identify yourself. But please, uh, you know, take advantage of the opportunity to, to uh, Query this uh, vet. Hi, thanks very much for your talk. It was Thank so you. interesting. Um, 
I wondered if you could talk a little bit about any instances in which you've had a real conflict between a personal opinion you've had about a new story and having to present it maybe in a way that you think doesn't do justice to, I don't know, the reality. So for example, have you ever felt like you've had to give too much balance to a story when actually the other side you didn't think was that credible, or you were giving too much weight to a countervailing opinion that was maybe based on less evidence? That's such a good question because if you get into, on this hand and on the other hand, too much, there's certain stories that of which there are not two opinions, two valid opinions. Um, I can think of the civil rights movement, um, for instance. You know, there aren't two valid opinions about using fire hoses when I was first a, a reporter uh, against people in, you know, in the 60s. So you can be too balanced and distort the reality. Now, in my have my own opinions. Yeah, I am passionate about certain things, about equal rights. I, I think on my MSNBC show, I probably have been um, very passionate about women's rights and gay rights and other things that are um, movements that are very near to my heart. Um, healthcare, not. The, the mode of delivery of healthcare, but the need for access. So I, I permit myself some liberties in that format to be not just analytical, but more opinionated, not in a partisan way, I don't think. But have I ever felt that there was something I couldn't cover? There certainly are things that I don't cover because I want to avoid any conflict of interest. Those things I've walled off for years now. On um, on the economy, but I I don't I don't think off the top of my head I can think of something where I feel that I could not do a credible job in the very restricted format of a two minute piece on the evening news because uh, let me just take you back to the '60s. I'm a kid reporter, entry level. Philadelphia, local radio news, all news all the time. The mayor of the city, well, the police chief at the time, he wasn't yet elected mayor, is a man named Frank Rizzo. Look it up. <laughs> um, a bully, a character, larger than life physically and you know metaphorically, tough, um, um, racially charged city, racially divided city, and a lot of issues. I am right out of school, newly minted, and all of my friends are still in graduate school. I'm the only one who went into this crazy television, at the time, radio news business. And my kid brother on the campus calls me and says, the night of the uh, Nixon incursion into Cambodia, um, we're all going down to Independence Hall. Um, to hear some speeches, do you want to come? So he and his girlfriend pick me up. We drive down to Independence Hall, candlelight, uh, parade of people, speeches. A lot of the kids I've gone to school are now graduate students and law students, and they're speaking. And it's an anti-war protest. And the head of civil disobedience for the Philadelphia Police Force comes over to me and says, um, 
what are you doing here? And I said, I'm just watching. He said, are you an observer or an, a participant? And I realized at that moment that I could no longer, um, I could be a witness, but that not that I couldn't go and watch something if I'm off duty, but that I had to really decide where am I in this place called life and profession, and I'm no longer um, able to sort of respond in the same way, and certainly not publicly, to things. And if I were giving this police uh, lieutenant any impression that I was part of the group, that was really damaging to my employer and to me. And there's a reason why we don't sign petitions and why when Lynn Downey was the managing editor of the Post, he said you couldn't register in a political party, even though that basically disenfranchises anybody living in the city of Washington because there's no Republican primary to speak of, so you're not participating. Um, there, there are certain things you give up that are rights of citizenship when you become a journalist. And I, I learn to respond um, very um, automatically, even to very controversial, passionate issues, by finding the core, finding the facts, reporting it in what you hope is a truly balanced way. And sometimes you miss the mark. And they will jump all over you now, especially. But I, I really don't think that there's anything that I haven't been able to cover. And you know, there's, we've had for years now, um, gay uh, journalists covering those issues, whether they're legal or social issues, and no one would think of saying that they could cover them uh, appropriately and responsibly. I mean, if we start separating, if I can't cover women's issues because I'm a woman then you know we're not people anymore. So I just think we all have to realize there are certain trophies, if you will, of journalism that we can all um, live up to, no matter who we are, and try to separate ourselves. And as David Brinkley, whom I you know, worked for years and years ago, said, there's no such thing as objectivity. By just deciding what should be on the front page or on the 22 minutes of the evening news, you're making a decision editorially. This is important, this isn't. This is more important, this is your lead. This is a little less important, it's your off lead. So those are the decisions we make every day. Um, and they're human decisions and sometimes, you know, you'll see on the evening news all three networks with the same conventionally or derived lead and done very similarly and sometimes three different leads because of different either economic or journalistic decisions. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Can, can you talk at all about the decision uh, GE made to d divest from the NBC uh, system? Uh, because uh, th you know it's well known that uh, journalism is suffering depleted ranks because uh, of depleted profits. And I was I was wondering whether uh, GE, which is a well-known conglomerate, uh, uh, whether whether when when NBC was was owned by GE, was it uh, operating at a loss? or uh, uh, not. And, and the other question is, that could you possibly put on your program, which I sometimes watch on MSNBC, uh, some, some coverage of the temperatures in other parts of the world, like Brazil, for example. I have a friend from Brazil who says that it's 120 degrees and 130 degrees with a heat index down there. And, and, uh, and, the, and the, there's all this flooding in Europe. And almost none of that information 
filters through into the American consciousness through the media at all. I mean, because the weather stations don't cover this, and, and nobody is covering it, and, and we now have the illusion that global warming is, you know, just another figment of the liberal imagination. You, you see it? I mean, yeah, let me, let me, first, I would not have any idea what went on in the corporate decision-making of General Electric in terms of when they sold us. Um, and they didn't divest, really. They sold us uh, right. for a lot of money to Comcast, which is another very wealthy company, fortunately, um, and has invested <laughs> a great deal in us. So um, it's, I think, been a mutually beneficial um, transaction for everyone concerned. And GE, as I understand it, was getting back to their core business, which wasn't broadcasting. And Comcast was acquiring a broadcaster and getting the content that fit their corporate plan. And the good thing is, I think from our perspective is, I have no idea what went on in the GE corporate boardroom because they never bothered us. We never heard from them. Uh, they made budgetary decisions, certainly, that were way above my pay grade, but there is such a, a firewall that at my level, and I interact you know, very regularly on a constant basis with all of my bosses, we never heard anything editorial from them, and we have never heard anything editorial from our new owners. So the good news is we are, like many other companies, owned by a corporate parent, and in my experience, if anything, we might have aired during the GE days, oh, well, this involves an issue that's a negative for GE. We better make sure we do it tonight because we don't want to be accused of going soft on the, on, the, on the owner. So you may discover, I think if you went back and discovered the PCP and the Hudson River thing, we're the only network that ever did it constantly because we didn't want to be accused of anything. So there's that. But there was no other, no other impact of it that I'm aware of. Um, in terms of Brazil, we do not enough on global warming and on climate, and I don't know that Brazil would be just the only example. Um, I was doing the Keystone Pipeline report last week or the week before, and that's just the beginning of our recurring interest in that. Ann Thompson, my colleague, um, is our environmental correspondent, was in West Virginia during the water crisis, and. Uh, back in, is now in Sochi, is going to be soon home, has traveled all over Greenland and elsewhere. So the climate stories, I think, are um, a, a major concern. Tom Brokaw, as you know, has been one of the um, huge advocates and is still um, you know, informing our coverage of that. So I, I would accept that none of the networks have done enough on um, climate, but I think there are many of us want to do more, and I'm determined to do that myself. I think the people in Atlanta would say that global warming is certainly doing something. <laughs> they seem to be, uh, you know, having a very hard time this winter. Yes, sir. Thank you, Andrew, for coming. I'm Vince Preston Goldson. I'm a CIA, CIA public affairs officer here on fellowship. Okay. I know of that program. <laughs> so my just quick question to you is uh, your view of intelligence reporting going forward post oh, and so your views on where, where the trends are, both for us in government interacting with these reporters, but also reporters covering issues in that security. I've never seen a bigger challenge than um, post-Snowden, because uh, the polarities on, 
on what Edward Snowden, who he is and what he did, are so dramatic. And it is so hard for anyone not in the immediate sphere to know who is accurately reflecting the damage or the benefits of it. I mean, whom are we to, to believe? Are we to believe the testimonies? Are we to believe a, a congressional chairman on a Sunday talk show implying something? Um, I mean, our sources, we're only as good as our sources. And a lot of us don't know what to make of it. Um, do I trust Glenn Grunewald and Bart Gelman and The Guardian and Laura Poitras? Do I believe Diane Feinstein or Jim Clapper? Or is the truth somewhere in between? I mean, I don't know what to make of it. And the most recent testimony by Clapper and by um, his DIA colleague that the majority of what Snowden revealed did not have to do with privacy, but it had to do with American military posture. I don't know if that's true. Do I report it? How do I caveat it? Um, most recently on that Sunday morning at 6 a.m. when I messaged everybody in God's creation as to whether Iranian warships were really moving towards the Atlantic coast when they don't have a, uh, they don't even have that kind of navy, um, the answer I got back was we can, we can respond by Monday morning. You know, we, we can get back to you on Monday morning. We're not, basically we're not in business on the weekend, <coughs> which wasn't the way it used to be in the old days. And so I got back to them on Monday morning and I said, hey, this is really not helpful. You know, our audiences are out there 24-7. And is it really the case that after 5 o'clock at night um, or on the weekends, we can't ask you a question? And um, the answer I got back was, well, most of our people don't have secure phones and they can't reach out to analysts and we can't communicate with you. So I don't know if that's new So policy. as a result, the Huffington Post was reporting that Iranian warships were headed for the American coast, which... And it was on FARS, which is a propaganda website, which is why we didn't go with it. And our Pentagon people did get some guidance and, and um, we're knocking it down, um, as did the NSC to me. But it took a while. Well, how to did you head for the American Atlantic coast from Iran? Well, <laughs> and, and first of all, they don't have that kind of fleet. You know, they're a coastal navy. Yeah, no, they can I mean, cause a lot of damage in the Strait of Hormuz, you know, and, and we have had crises over the years going back to 1987 when I was in Venice covering the economic summit and all of a sudden we were reflagging tankers and um, escorting ships. So the, does, the this, navy. Does, this, does this make sense that the CIA would not be able to, to respond to a report like this over the Well, I, I know, I can always speak from when I was there up until, you know, Andrews called me and to me all different times. I've wakened him at many times. <laughs> we try to get back as quickly as possible. Yes, I mean, you do. I think what I would have said in that circumstance is probably it's highly unlikely because just right. knowing what you know. There's a new knows. caution, yeah. I think, post-Snowden as well. And um, you, you have, there are people in the audience who are far better equipped than I to, uh, the Thorps are here, but, uh, about what the Iranian Navy can or cannot do, but am I am I anywhere near being accurate here? Okay, thank you. It would be a long cruise from Iran. <laughs> yeah. Hi, my name is Roberto Patiño. I'm from Caracas, Venezuela. Before coming here, I was a student activist and a political activist there. This is a country with a lot of censorship in the media, so a lot of times activists in other countries, we try to seek for international media for attention, and we get a lot of frustration for not getting it. 
So my question is, what, how, how do you determine what's important that it's happening in other country in order to give some air time and some attention to it? Well, I think, to be perfectly blunt, um, what interests me, I can put on my show. But to get attention on the, in the limited venue of an evening newscast, not the digital space where we do so much more, is it, I mean, is it newsworthy? So have we seen you know, something that is, in Syria, horrific? Have we seen barrel bombs? You know, are there reports of something truly extraordinary going on? Um, how does it affect American policy? Are Americans engaged? Um, in Afghanistan, have NATO forces been attacked? Uh, have, what has the Taliban done? What has, in Egypt, are there thousands and thousands of people in Tahrir Square? Is the Egyptian army now attacking them? Um, in Ukraine, um, is there another revolution going on now? Is a rebel government going to be formed? I mean, these are major stories. It, it, it used to be there had to be good pictures. That's no longer the case. I mean, I think we are, we are so much more interconnected that we understand more about what's happening in other parts of the world. But um, what happened in Tunisia set off the spark that then led to, certainly, to Egypt. And then we saw what was um, snuffed out in Bahrain. And in Libya, did the American government get involved because of what was reportedly happening in Benghazi, the first round? And did that lead us to take on Gaddafi? Those are the, the things that would drive America to be involved. Um, I think we are, we in the mainstream media or in major media are much too um, attention deficit disorder in our response. You know, we'll get all dialed up last year at this time about what was happening in Korea because of threats and then forget about it and then get all excited again when there are hostages taken or if Dennis Rodman goes to Korea. So we don't follow through enough. We're not consistent in our, in, and um, the coverage of China has been, you know, appalling because we get excited when China declares uh, its control over, you know, uh, air defense zone and then we hear that, ch that Chinese and Japanese officials are mixing it up in Munich uh, with Prime Minister Abe and should we be concerned about the growing friction? And I meet with people and I see what the ambassadors are writing in the Washington Post, which was extraordinary, the Chinese ambassador putting in an op-ed and attacking the Japanese and the Japanese ambassador putting an op-ed in the Washington Post and responding, and the State Department saying, oh my god, we've got these you know, two Asian powers arguing with each other rather than dealing with us bilaterally. So I'm really interested in that, in that and, and I discuss it on my program, but to get that story on the evening news, that was probably a, a one-week phenomenon. <coughs> no one has revisited it. So that's a long way of saying we are not consistent in our coverage. How to get our attention is to um, is to be 
reaching out to us, letting us know. Um, we have bureaus in most places, and those that we don't, through our foreign correspondence and through our London bureau, letting us know of the issues. And um, you know, online is the best way. And I'll give you my card uh, before I leave, so that you can reach me directly. Hi. Um, you were speaking before very eloquently about um, sort of journalism and the, the principles that journalists need to take into their own personal lives about objectivity and, and participation. participation. Also been, we've also been speaking a lot about the changing nature of journalism, uh, even within your own network, how you have your more traditional uh, journalism during the day and then the op-ed pages, so to speak, at night. I guess my question is, as a public, we're consuming journalism in all these types of forms, whether it's bloggers like Lynn Greenwald who are breaking major stories or uh, people like Rachel Maddow who are reporting mm -hmm. at night. Who do you consider journalists in these ways and, and who should we hold to those it's really, It's a really good question. I mean, Rachel, the first 15 minutes of Rachel's program is one of the most deeply reported, um, you know, carefully researched, um, well-documented um, essays, if you will. That's journalism. And what she chooses to care about is within her her ideological framework or her passions. Um, that's a well-reported column, and it has huge value. And um, so I wouldn't presume to say what is and what isn't. I think it's a cafeteria, and there's all this food out there, you know. And um, on our Traditional newscasts, we tend to be more traditional, but online we open it up. And um, we've separated the msnbc.com and nbc.com websites because we want to have a, a better labeled you know, distinction for our, for our readers and viewers. It isn't always easy, as Alex was suggesting in, his, in the question that he asked for me to straddle these things. I try to be as careful as I can. But I wouldn't, I think that, you know, Glenn Greenwald is breaking a lot of real news. And he's done some work with us recently, in fact. Um, but that's not to say that he won't have very strong opinions that um, are clearly not, you know, down the middle, you know, you know, fact-checked journalism in, in the way we grew, grew, first became accustomed to it. And I think that's, you know, that, that is the joy of the internet. The important thing is for people to be educated consumers, as you all are, and not to be wedded to MSNBC or wedded to Fox and only getting reinforcing, um, uh, quote-unquote, facts or, or opinions thrown at you that impede your ability to make informed decisions. I would, let me offer one thought on this, and this is something that I think is a distinction that it's worth making. The word objectivity gets thrown around a lot. And I think that objectivity becomes a kind of a, a straw man for suspending judgment. I don't think that means that at all. And what I think that, that someone like uh, David Brinkley meant when he said there's no objectivity. He meant, or he meant that, that you're always going to have a judgment factor. 
But when the editors, for instance, of the New York Times and NBC News meet in the morning or in the late afternoon in the case of the Times to decide what's going to be on the front page, they don't look at it as a propagandist does. They look at it as what the most important news is. That requires judgment. And that means that they are trying to be as objective about what's the most important thing for them to put out there. They don't choose to put what's on the front page for propagandistic reasons, at least that's my judgment. The thing about, about Glenn Greenwald, for instance, is my sense is that he has such a strong point of view that you know exactly where he's going to come from on anything that he releases. And that may please some people, but it may also, to a certain degree, compromise his credibility with some others. Because you know what he's going to say, and you know how he's going to frame what he says. I think his counterpart at the Washington Post is a different creature, in my opinion, in a different kind of journalistic approach. And some people prefer the one and some the other. But I think that, that the idea of objectivity is basically that you're not trying to cook the books. That's the way, that's what objectivity means to me. Yeah. And if, uh, let me just add one thing. I agree completely with what Alex said and what it also made me think of is there used to be a sort of a who, what, when, where, and why wire service approach to covering a lot of Washington institutions, agencies. And I think that also does a disservice. You know, if you say today the president said, this, 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 and this in a speech, and you're covering Ronald Reagan, let's say, and you don't say, you don't add, however, you know, when he says he wants to balance the budget, he's done this to the defense budget, or not. I mean, you, I would hope, want to hear from me or my predecessors, my colleagues at other networks or at newspapers with our contextual reporting on something. That's why we, love David Broder and love Dan Balls when they cover politics. Um, that's the value that a Jeff Zeleny or a Peter Baker brings to the beat. You just don't want someone repeating what the press secretary is telling you from the podium. And I don't think that's being opinionated. That's just having some experience and knowing your subject matter. Yeah, I agree. I mean, back in the 50s, the McCarthy the McCarthy whole scare got started in part because journalists were simply reporting what McCarthy said with no further, you know, you know, closed stop. That's not journalism. Uh, you had a question. I didn't mean to run Sorry, you I think off. We're out of time. Just thought we were close. No, we're not. We're not out of time. We've got time for you. Hi, I'm Ann McDonald, and I was really interested as you were speaking on kind of going from Morning Joe to reporting on Chuck to doing your own show and then the nightly news pieces. Um, as someone who was a press secretary, kind of thinking through on our, my side of the ball, how, how I would possibly um, just functionally sort through all of that information and how what, what are the mechanics that NBC News has and what's supporting you that's filtering through everything um, in order to kind of to deliver it's, for you what you need to have. It can be really dysfunctional. And uh, let me explain. When Hillary Clinton became Secretary of State and I was doing my show, I was on the road with her nonstop. And so, of course, her travel schedule, not only the time zones, but her travel schedule had nothing to do with my deadlines. And I was doing my program from different continents and countries day at, you know, each day, leapfrogging and um, 
it was really, really hard. And then perhaps doing the news and doing the Today Show, but on a single subject, more or less. The, the news of the day in South Korea or the news of the day in China. Um, now, I find that I'm not traveling as much. I was doing a lot of travel with Carrie at first, but I just cannot keep up with the travel and the other parts of my job. And it wasn't as productive because when you're in that bubble, you're also not getting a whole lot of other information. And it's just harder to report. So I'm picking and choosing. He left today for Asia, and I'm not on that trip. It's a, it's a longish trip, and I've just got other things that I really needed to be doing, and I was coming here. But I have a, a number of really good producers. There are days when I cannot do nightly news because I've just spent too much time on my program. I don't spend as much time digging up and breaking big stories as I would like to do. So that is the trade-off. But often I can do reporting in the morning and then develop that major story from my broadcast and expand on it or um, refine it for nightly news so that I'm not, it's not as though I'm doing two different things, I'm just interviewing four people on my you know, midday broadcast and then taking the best of what they say or talking to them afterwards and doing a separate interview for the evening news and then starting my scripting. With the noon hour, I'll have an extra hour. It just means starting the day earlier, but I'll have an, another hour to work on the evening newscast. Then, of course, we start all over again in the af after 6.30, 7 o'clock, then let's come up with a new top to the story for the Today Show, get that written and come in in the morning and do it. So the hours are getting, um, it's been, it's been tough, I'm not going to kid you. And I think there, in the old days we had four White House correspondents, two at the State Department, two at the Pentagon, producers and such. 1980, my first political campaign for the network, I was the number two NBC correspondent covering Walter Mondale's vice presidential re-election campaign, wall to wall, with two network crews. Think of the investment. Um, we never got on the air. Uh, the only time we got on the air with Walter Mondale in 1980 was when a Titan missile warhead blew up and landed in Arkansas, and he was in Little Rock. <laughs> he was in Warm Springs, and um, the then governor of Arkansas, Bill Clinton, um, uh, led the, the vice presidential traveling press corps on a tour of this field where the missile from Kansas had landed. Um, all good things to all good Arkansas. Things. So, uh, so I'm just saying, we could do with a lot more help if someone wants to you know, tell the folks out there, but um, it's still manageable. There will be times, I think, when we just can't do, we can't do as much flying around the country. It used to be that um, when what happened with the Hillary Clinton story, I had to send a producer to Fayetteville to go through the archives because I could not get on a plane and also do the newscast. Those are the trade-offs. We are about out of time, but I want to ask you one quick thing. As a longtime Washington Post reader and watcher and a resident of Washington, how is Marty Barron doing? How is Jeff Bezos going to affect the Post? What do you see happening? 
I don't know yet. I haven't seen an imprint of Jeff Bezos yet. Um, I may, might be that I'm not close enough to it. The Post was, was hurting, as Don Graham would be the first to tell you, that they weren't able to make the commitment to politics and foreign coverage as much as they would have liked. And I don't yet know what the outcome is going to be. Um, what he said in that tearful farewell was that uh, they might not have survived had they not sold it. And I think that that is the general view of a lot of my friends and colleagues there as well. Um, and what are they saying about Marty, who was the editor of the Boston Globe before he went down? I think a lot of positive feedback so far. But well, I can I, tell you this. When Marty worked for the Boston Globe, which was owned by the New York Times Company, there was nothing, nothing, nothing that he liked better than meeting the New York, New York Times. Times. So, so that's what the editor of the Washington Post should feel like. And we're all so competitive. I mean, it is, it is striking when I'm with my reporter friends, my journalist friends. We are competitive. And it's not that you have to be first with the story. You know, you want to be best with the story. But it sure feels good when you are. And so um, that is part of the DNA of most reporters. I'm glad that hasn't changed. <laughs> Andrea, thank you very much. Glad thank to you. Have you.